0: Hey everyone, a quick note before we get started, if you're enjoying this podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. We do read those reviews, and by the way, speaking of, I should let you all know that we're working on new theme music, and I'm working on talking a little faster, so your comments have been heard but giving us good ratings and subscribing really does help other people to find us. Alright, let's get started! Hello, and welcome back to the Christian Civics Podcast, where we explore how the Gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. And I want to especially welcome the 80 or so of you who were able to join us in the heart of D.C. last week for a one-night-only conference on how we can be agents of healing in our divided country. We planned the event in partnership with Q Ideas, an organization helping Christians wrestle with big questions about what our faith might mean for today's culture. The event consisted of three national talks that were broadcast by Q to over 100 cities and towns around the world, and then three local presentations that happened live exclusively here in D.C. For those of you who weren't able to join us for that event last Thursday, we're going to bring you a couple of the highlights on the podcast today. Our goal with putting together the local presentations was to help attendees engage with ideas they might not have easy access to most of the time, or to highlight Christians who are living lives that don't easily conform to the patterns we're used to, lives that might seem like contradictions in the eyes of the world. Some of the ideas that night were pretty challenging or provocative. And I just ask you to please bear in mind that you'll be hearing these today without the benefit of the guided small group discussions that were also such a key part of the event that night, where people really worked through these talks together. Our first presentation is on an idea that's incredibly important for anyone who follows a God who made himself known through incarnation. When we start thinking about faith in the public square, it's easy for us to jump Right to thinking about what Christianity could mean for national politics or even international relations. But as citizen rulers charged with the responsibility of stewarding our neighborhoods and communities, we can't skip over thinking about what our faith means for the lives of the people nearest to us in our neighborhoods. To dive into this idea a little more, we invited Chapri Lamaglio to speak at the DC event. Chapri is the vice president for government relations and executive programs at the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, and she shared about her own experiences living locally in a global city.
1: On a recent Sunday night in my home, I paused and counted 12 people— There were five children and seven adults, and four of the adults lived in the house, three didn't. They were friends and neighbors, and none of the kids in the house belonged to any of the adults. We weren't having a party or an event of any sort. It was just an increasingly normal night in our home. And if you're confused by the math, well, let me start by just telling you a little bit about our house. I have the distinct privilege to own um, exactly one-third of a house in Columbia Heights. Um, Two married couples from my church, both of whom are here tonight, each own the other third. And this, I guess you could call it a missional living community, started three years ago, inspired by our desire to live near our church and the neighborhood recreation center that we volunteered at our frustration at the housing prices in the neighborhood, and our desire to have a home big enough for hosting church events and include a little alcohol, and voila, an idea was born. (laughs) From the beginning, one of the things that drew us together as housemates was that we wanted the space to be able to be shared with others. Not just at events or parties, but an extra room for people who needed a place to stay. In our collective years in D.C., we had seen a lot of people who needed a place to land for just a bit. People in job or school transitions, teens with unstable housing or family situations. And over and over, we wished that we could provide a refuge for those without a home, even briefly. We felt God calling us to not only build a home for ourselves, but one that we could invite others into. So back to that Sunday night, uh, the five children in our home, that night were children that we've come to know through our church's mentoring program and through the DC 127 ministry named after James 1 verse 27, which ministers to families in crisis by providing lodging for children and friendship for parents. At various stages in these kids' lives, they and their parents at points have stayed in our home for weeks or even months. And they are in our home regularly for tutoring, sleepovers, or even just to stop by for a meal. These kids and their parents have become more than just our neighbors or even our friends. They've become like our family. And i got to tell you, I didn't plan for this when I moved to D.C. almost 10 years ago. My story is like many that Rick mentioned. I moved to D.C. to be a constitutional lawyer, work on the Hill, reform taxes, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And I rarely ventured out past the parts of the district that hold the seats of power. I viewed D.C. as the nation's capital and really nothing else. I did not know its history or its resonance. In my day job, I'm not a social worker or a teacher or a community organizer. I'm barely even good with people. I'm a lawyer who I move a lot of paper around and I spend a lot of time on Capitol Hill and reading the Federal Register. And as the Vice President for Government and External Relations at the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, I work on national legislation to preserve religious freedom. I also advocate for the interests of our almost 200 schools in 20 countries around the world and the almost 450,000 students that we enroll each year. I travel so much sometimes that I'm gone from D.C. more than I'm even here. And so there's probably no one more surprised than me that I wound up living in a quasi-hippie commune that spends a ton of time with kids from our neighborhood and thinking about the flourishing of our city and our neighborhood and our neighbor. It's easy to move to D.C. with lofty goals like changing the world or being part of history and then to surround yourself only with those just like you. It's easy to remain disconnected from the city we live in, unaware of its history or its many layers and classes and race. It's easy to live in the city and never really be of the city or for the city. To view the city as a place from which to launch our dreams, our ambitions, our lives, while never really thinking about the dreams or ambitions or lives of the people who were already here. And that was certainly my experience until the Holy Spirit opened my eyes to see something different. You're probably familiar with Jeremiah 29.7 and its call to seek the welfare of our city, to pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. We're not called to be consumers of our city, but contributors, contributors to it, not beneficiaries of our neighborhood, but betterers of it, and not in physical proximity to our neighbors, but in personal relationship with them. For me, there is no better example to our call to live a life with, in, and among our neighbors, our neighborhoods, our cities, than the call of Christ himself. If God expressed the magnitude of his love for us by sending his son to be physically present on this earth, to live and to walk among us, to enter into our human experience, to hear the sounds of children laughing, to touch the leper, to feel tears of sorrow running down his cheeks at the death of his friend Lazarus, to taste the wine and chew the bread. Or as John 1.14 of the message says, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. How can we better express the magnitude of our love for God than to do the same? by being present in the lives of those with whom we share this city. It's possible, however, that you share feelings I certainly have expressed in the past, that I cared about the world and its people, but I'm a big picture person. Or that the best way I can help the poor or the sick to work towards peace is through public policy. And while I definitely still believe those are my strengths, I've now come to believe that they are not instead of loving my neighbor Jesus does not command us to love public policy or our government or even the world generally. We are commanded to love our neighbor. And our neighbor is not only the person we share a wall with, but also the people we share this city with. The second greatest commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves is not only if we are uniquely gifted for it, or skilled for it, or even interested in it. We're called to it because of the cross's horizontal beam. God's love for us and our love for him, expressed in the vertical beam, must then flow out through other, to others because of the horizontal beam. It is because we're not skilled at it, because we're not good at it, because it's not easy that we're called to it. For it is in our weakness that he is made perfect. Loving our neighbor, our city, it's not just about volunteering or executing a program or reading a book. Lives are changed. Cities are changed through relationship. God traversed the gap for us, a gap that would lead to sin and death by inviting us into relationship and by being willing to sacrifice in order to make that relationship possible. Likewise, we can traverse the gaps in health, age, education, income, experience, culture by inviting others into relationship and by being willing to sacrifice our comforts, our preferences, our schedule, our finances, our expectations in order to make that relationship possible. This has definitely not always been easy, and I've definitely not always been good at it. My schedule has been interrupted. We got bed bugs. My heart has been broken. We've cried. And I've not always done it joyfully, and I've not always done it gracefully. You may think you already don't have enough time or enough room in your heart or apartment and that there's already too much about living in this city that is uncomfortable or hard. But Jesus didn't Just multiply the loaves and the fishes that one time. I realized this at the end of the day I started by telling you about. At the end of that day, I had sat reflecting on what a full and rich day it had been. I had had breakfast with a friend, and I had gone to church, and I had cooked two meals for more than ten people, and I had caught a couple quarters of the football game and gone for a walk for a friend, and swept and straightened the house, and I had even started responding to work emails on my phone while I sat gathering enough energy to make it up the stairs before bed. And as I was sitting there, I realized that while the biblical miracle was about physical fish and bread, he is a God who multiplies what he has given us so that our needs might be met, but also so that others' needs might be met through us. That day, he had multiplied my time, He does not promise us tomorrow's bread. He promises us our daily bread. And so we must eat our share and give the rest away. During the exodus, if anyone took two shares of daily manna, the extra share would mold overnight. So we must take what he has given us and use it to feed ourselves and also to meet the needs of others, trusting that there will be enough for today and that tomorrow he again will provide.
0: Okay, that was Chapri Lamaglio from the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities. The overwhelming majority of people who were at this event last week are Christians living and working in Washington, D.C., who moved here from somewhere else. And over and over again, when I have conversations with Christians who live and work in D.C., but aren't from here originally, I keep hearing that when they moved here, they really just thought of D.C. as kind of a dumping ground for our national political work. But the more time they spend here, the more they realize that it's a living, breathing community with its own personality, its own needs. It's a place where people need Christ and where the Holy Spirit is already moving and has been moving and where people who come here to kind of teach DC a thing or two can actually come to learn themselves and grow themselves. And, um, where they can come to be made to look more like Christ themselves. So one of the things I was really excited for us to dig into last week was a story about what it looks like to come to DC kind of with these big national ambitions, kind of the way most people outside of the district think about this city and then learn, um, through real experience, through really, uh, Walking with Christ and through your act of kind of small acts of daily discipleship, learn what it looks like to have a local faith, to live out the theology of incarnation and the theology of place in this place. Moving on, I've heard it said that any pastor really worth his salt has to be at least 50% sociologist so that they can better understand. the community that they're ministering to and the people who live there so that they can kind of get inside the head of the congregation and learn how to preach the gospel most effectively to them. Another one of our local speakers at this event took that idea and really ran with it. Longtime listeners of our podcast might remember Dr. Richard Smith from our very first episode, what we called Episode Zero. Dr. Smith is the pastor of the Movement Church in Columbia, Maryland, and also an associate professor of sociology at McDaniel College. And we invited him to Q Commons to share a little bit about what the field of sociology can offer Christians who are struggling to navigate, how to understand and talk about the um, rising conversation around racial inequality. He has uh, what I think is a really useful framework for um, figuring out how to respond to really any claims of systemic injustice that we might come across and need to learn to deal with. And so, without further ado, here's Dr. Smith's presentation from last week's Q Commons in Washington, D.C.
2: Thank you, Rick. Well, as he mentioned, I'm a pastor as well as a sociologist, but I have to be very upfront with you. It doesn't take a pastor or a sociologist to know that we're dealing with some tough times right now and that we're dealing with intense moment of racial injustice. But I will say this, racial injustice is not anything new. In fact, there hasn't been a time in our history where we had racial justice. There hasn't been a time in our history where we could say, oh yeah, this period, everything was nice, it was wonderful. And what we're seeing today is that more people are seeing different forms of racial injustice in ways that we haven't been able to see before, due to uh, videos, due to Facebook, as someone was mentioning, Twitter, and uh, other forms of social media. But what's interesting about this time is that the response that we have and even those of us who are Christians, the response that we have has been constantly pushed or I should say influenced by the society we live in. So we have been influenced to pick sides. We have been influenced to take a position and hold on to that position and not listen to anyone else that has a different position. If you don't believe me, Think about how many people on Facebook that you no longer are friends, or at least you don't follow them anymore, because they said that one thing you didn't like. Or maybe it's the other way around, someone's not following you anymore, because you said that thing that they didn't like. So, what I want to present today is, you know, what should we do in order to deal with racial injustice? Or, another way to say that, how should we respond to racial injustice? especially those of us as Christians, but really anyone. How should we respond? Well, I would say that one way that we shouldn't respond is through apathy. And what we can see very clearly is that so many people in our society have been apathetic about what's going on, especially with racial issues. When we think about what has happened in Charlottesville, what has happened around police brutality, what has happened, or I should say... um, I should say protest around police brutality. What has happened with Islamophobia? Immigration? When we talk about these issues, there's a segment of people, including people in the church, that have been apathetic about it. In other words, I don't care. I don't care because it's not happening to me. And since it's not happening to me, it's not affecting my family, it's not affecting people that I know is not an issue. What scholars have called that is the privilege of obliviousness. Because it's not affecting me, I don't even have to think about it or hear about it. I don't have to pay attention about it. Attention to it. So I can go on singing songs in the church, I can go on clapping and singing good praise and worship and not think about the people that's around me. But okay, here's the pastor moment. The scripture says this, actually Jesus said this. What we do to the least of these, we have done to him. So if we don't care about the least of these, What that is saying, we really don't care about him. In fact, that scripture says, the least of these, my brothers and sisters. So what it's saying is that we're not caring about him or we're not caring about his brothers and sisters. So apathy is not the way. So there are some levels that I'm going to talk about as far as how we should respond. The first level, or I should say, getting to how we should really respond. The first level is called sympathy. I know we're very familiar with sympathy. And sympathy does this. It says, I feel bad about what's happening. I feel bad about what I'm seeing. I feel bad that people are going through that, but I'm not gonna do anything about it. I feel bad, but it's not gonna push me to make any changes. It's not gonna push me to do something different than I'm already doing. Yes, that's bad, what's going on over there, but I'm not gonna do anything else about it. See, sympathy relates to what we call, race scholars call the colorblind myth, or the myth of colorblindness. It's, you know, I don't see race, but at the same time, I also don't see the systemic racism that's embedded in our institutions and internally, as well as within our interactions. So. We can't get stuck at sympathy. We have to move up from there. The next level is this. Some people react through empathy, meaning not only do I feel bad about it, but now I'm pained by this. This is hurting me. This is affecting me because of what is happening to that group over there or what's happening to others. Now, that's an excellent level to be on, wonderful level to be on. But the problem there is that it can be self-serving, where we just focus on our pain and not really focus on the pain of others. In fact, when it comes to sympathy and empathy, sometimes we can still remain silent about what's happening. The great German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, said this, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. There comes a time where we have to stand up, which takes me to the level we should be on. And it's what I call the antipathy level. Now, you know antipathy means despise or hatred or intense dislike. But really what it's saying is I dislike racism so much because I love my brothers and sisters so much. And I dislike it and I hate it because I hate what it's doing to us. I hate what it's doing to them. I hate what it's doing to me. I hate what it's doing to our society. I hate what it's doing to our churches. I hate how we're so divided. And as a result, I cannot go another day without doing something to change this, something to make a difference, something where I can say I am not just going to sit back, but I am going to stand up and I am going to make the change that needs to be changed. This antipathy, antipathy level is also what I call the love level. It's the love level because that's where we're truly showing that we love our brothers and sisters. See, the scripture says love never fails. Not only that, Jesus said, as we heard earlier, that we have to love our neighbor as what? Ourselves. Now, there's been several examples of this. In the 1860s, there was a group called the Radical Republicans. There was Daddy Stevens and Charles Sumner and others who gave up their own selves and their own livelihoods and their own privilege and decided, we do not like slavery. We don't like what has happened to a group of people that should be treated just like everyone else because they're human beings. So they gave up their, their own livelihoods, really. Charles Sumner was beaten. Thaddeus Stevens, was. there was such backlash against them, but yet they fought and as a result, they were able to help to make a change. If we go to the civil rights movement, so many people I could talk about, but I want to talk about Viola Luizzo, who decided to march to Selma, that she was going to step up and drive people back to their homes. They found her later that day, shot dead she made an ultimate sacrifice. Didn't know probably that that was going to be her last day, but she said, I need to stand up and do something. And then there's a gentleman by the name of Shane Claiborne. When I lived in Philadelphia, I had an opportunity to speak to him and Shane Claiborne decided that, you know what, I'm not going to go along with the traditional way of doing church or well, I'm not going to go along with traditional religion. I want to go where the people are, I want to help. And he decided to live in what is considered one of the worst communities in Philadelphia. Him and a couple of his friends bought a house there, and they created an intentional community where they could show love. They could reach out to others, share with each other, support one another. People that was a different culture than him. They were there, and they wanted to show Jesus' love to them. These people went to that love level. And I share that because I've recognized that as Christians, those of us that are Christians, isn't that what we're called to be? On that love level, where we're supposed to turn the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through his love, we can change things because love never fails. Thank you.
0: That was Dr. Richard Smith offering us a spectrum of responses to injustice in our communities and in our country. One of the most challenging stories in the Old Testament for me was always the story of Abraham and Sarah in Egypt. And it's actually one of three stories in the Old Testament that all go the same way. One of Israel's patriarchs goes into a foreign land with his wife, and then he's afraid that if people knew that they were married— They'd kill him so that they could sleep with her. So, this father of our faith tells everyone that he and his wife are siblings instead of spouses, and he tells his wife to let the powerful leaders of the region think that she's sexually available to them. It even goes as far as to say that in Egypt, Sarah became part of Pharaoh's household, and that in Gerar, Abimelech took her as a a wife. Then these princes or rulers always find out about the deception, and they get angry at Abraham or at Isaac for deceiving them and for forcing them to sin against visitors to their land this way. It was always a hard series of stories for me to get my head around. And years ago, and I can't remember where anymore, and I feel really bad about that, but... Years ago, I heard a preacher dive into them in a way that was helpful to me. He said that there's a number of ways people might be tempted to react to these stories, but he really wanted to, that day, just pose one big question to us. He wanted to know if we believed that the only sin to be angry about in that story was committed by Abraham against his wife or if we thought that the broader society, the broader social systems, the broader powers and principalities were also sinful, since they had earned a reputation that drove Abraham and Sarah to that sinful fear and that sinful action in the first place. I was thinking about that a lot during Dr. Smith's talk, because I think his talk gives some clear categories for how different people might react to that story. We can be apathetic to the cultural injustice of the time and only focus on Abraham and Sarah's cowardice or their sin or their short-sightedness. Or we can have sympathy and feel bad for the hard position Sarah was in. Or we can have empathy and thank God that we don't live in situations like that. Or we can... Develop antipathy toward the selfishness and the injustice and the violence that were so common in that society. And we can look for places where similar idolatries might be expressing themselves in our communities or in our country or in our own hearts today. Am I ignoring someone's pain or struggles? Am I denying that they're really experiencing what they say they're experiencing? Am I insisting that I understand the pain that they're experiencing better than they do, even if I've never gone through it? That's apathy in Dr. Smith's construct. Do I believe what someone is saying and feel bad for them, and tell myself that it's, it's just too sad, but at the same time think that there's probably a good reason that it's them and not me? That's sympathy. Am I willing to put myself in their place and think about how I would feel if I were them? That's empathy. And if I can do that, if I can empathize, can I go one step farther? Can I put myself in their place and then, instead of thinking about how I would feel, can I look out at the world through their eyes and think about how the world must seem to them? I was, briefly, in a former decade, a political speechwriter, and one of my very favorite speeches from U.S. history, maybe for my money the most beautiful speech a politician has ever given, made the point that the only way this country really works, this country that God has carried you and me into and charged us as his people to seek the peace and well-being of the only way it really works is if we make an effort to understand people that we're tempted to hate. The gospel connects us to the power to do that. It connects us to Jesus through the Holy Spirit, and if we can find a way to put ourselves in the place of the people that we are tempted to hate, God can turn our stone hearts into flesh. The thing I love about Dr. Smith's talk is that it offers us all a really practical model, a roadmap for how to get out of our own heads and into the heads of the very people we may not want to understand. He gives us steps for examining our own hearts, to search our hearts and see where we fall short, to examine ourselves and prayerfully ask, am I apathetic to these people? If so, can I get to sympathy? Can I get to empathy? Can I get to antipathy? Please join me briefly in prayer. Great God, you are the healer of hearts and minds and bodies and spirits. Every person listening to this today has been embedded by you into a community where there are real divisions. And most of us have been embedded by you in a country that is deeply divided. Yet you are the God who promises Tikkun, who promises the healing of things that are fractured. We carry your name and the title of your son when we call ourselves Christians, so please empower us to be agents of his Tikkun in our neighborhoods, in our towns, in our country. When the problems facing our nation seem too big, remind us that you are bigger. When we can't see how we could Possibly reach out far enough to make a difference. Show us the people within arm's length that you would have us touch. And when we face people we don't like, when we see them commenting on Facebook or hear them complaining at family dinner or when we pass them handing out flyers in front of a mall or see a report about them on the news, teach us to take the first steps away from apathy. You weren't apathetic to our sin and sickness and our death. You sent your Son to live among us, to suffer under unjust powers and unjust principalities, so that when we turned to you and cry, we'd know that you understand. So teach us to not turn a deaf ear to the cries of people groups we might fear or disdain or look down on, And when those unjust powers and principalities killed your son, you raised him from the grave to show that injustice is finite, but your love and your forbearance and your power are infinite. Impress on us the magnitude of the grace you've shown us, so that we can be more sincerely patient and generous with others." We pray these things so that our lives and actions can bring glory to your Son, Jesus, by whose authority we get to pray. Amen. Thank you all for praying with us this week. We'll be back in two weeks with a conversation about compassion fatigue with someone who's been in just really hard ministry for more than 20 years. A little bit of housekeeping before we go. We're coming up on the end of the year. No, I can't believe it either. And we would really appreciate your help ending 2017 well. We'd love to be able to get this podcast out to you weekly, and there are a bunch of other cool projects we're hoping to get off the ground in 2018. Some new publications and curriculum that we want to design for local churches, especially. But we can't do any of that without your support. One-time year-end gifts are really really appreciated, and committing to being a monthly supporter is even better. Monthly support helps us budget and operate more responsibly. All of your support, whether it's a one-time year-end gift or whether you're going to become a monthly supporter, all of that is 100% tax-deductible, and you can make those contributions online at christiancivics.org. A big thanks to Sonic Weapon Fence for our theme music, to Chapri Lamaglio and Dr. Richard Smith for being part of Q Commons last week, and to Church of the Advent for all the help they provided making that event happen. Thank you all for being a part of this work and for praying along. Uh, We'll be back in about two weeks, and in the meantime, visit us at christiancivics.org to learn more about our work empowering the church to be lamps on stands across the political spectrum.